We talk a lot about radicalization and terrorism, but what can the average person do when they see these things happening? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? So you know that I worked in security intelligence for more than 30 years. One of the files that I spent a lot of time on in the 2000s and 2010s was this notion of radicalization to violence, i.e. individuals adopting an ideology consistent with very violent movements like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. And in the worst case scenario, they, they went from adopting the ideology to actually planning acts of terrorism, either in Canada or abroad. The bottom line is, is that when you work for the security service and you come across cases like this, it is far more frequent that other individuals who don't work for the security service or law enforcement or government agencies are actually the ones that see it first. And by those people, I mean family and friends. And there's been a, a number of organizations that have been created in the past couple of years to deal with this particular situation to help uh, people who are exhibiting signs of going down the wrong pathway, which may end badly for themselves or others. And so one of these organizations is called Parents for Peace. It is a non-governmental public health nonprofit empowering families, friends, and communities to prevent radicalization, violence, and extremism. And I'm delighted to have on the podcast this morning with me, uh, Miriam Churchill. She's executive director of Parents for Peace. She has more than 30 years experience as a psychotherapist. So Miriam, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me. Thank you, Phil, for having me over. So I gave a very brief synopsis of what Parents for Peace is, Miriam. Perhaps you can tell my listeners a bit more detail about when the organization was created and why it was created and what exactly is it you're trying to achieve? Yes. So um, to answer this question, I need to talk to you about the history of how it came about. Um, so on June 1st, 2009, uh, Carlos Bledsoe, um opened fire with a rifle on a soldier in uh, front of a United States military recruitment office uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I remember that, yeah. Yes, and so uh, it was pretty much all in the news. At that time, we didn't really talk much about uh, homegrown terrorism. Uh, but he killed Private William Long, and he wounded Private uh, Quentin uh, Esguela. Um, so Carlos converted to Islam uh, and became Abdul Hakim Mujahid Muhammad. Uh, and so he was groomed actually by the wrong crowd when he was on campus uh, at Little Rock. Uh, and like his father, Melvin, said, I sent my son to get an education. I didn't know that they would eventually send him to Yemen. And he actually ended up going to Yemen in 2007. And he, after that, claimed that he was sent uh, on the, to, you know, to, to, to carry an attack by Al-Qaeda. Um, so after Carlos' arrest, his father, Melvin Bloodsoe, um, uh, an African-American small business owner from Memphis, decided to gather other parents of extremists and survivors to launch Parents for Peace. So, uh, of course, the goal was to create a support network for families who were devastated by grooming into extremism. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, Phil, but there was like a whole period of time where we saw 
all those Americans, not necessarily actually Muslim, who had their kids convert and yes. go to Syria and go yes. to Somalia, and then and then the parents were baffled. Uh, and so, what we end up doing is talking to other parents and saying that if it happened, Melvin said, if it happened to my son, it must happen to other people's son. Right. So that's how Parents for Peace came, you know, uh, to, together. So it was very much um, making some good out of a tragedy, like Melvin Bledsoe seeing what happened to his son, wanting to give back and help so that other parents didn't have to go through something similar. You know, Mary, when when this organization, uh, so what year was it created in again, please? So uh, I guess, so uh, Carlos carried an attack in 2009 and in 2015, this is when the organization came, you know, came together. Okay. So it's been around for the better part of seven years now. Um, I used to say Carlos Bledsoe's attack dates back almost 13 years now. How has it changed since the early days, Miriam? You know, we you talked about the fact that in the 2000s and 2010s, when I was with the security service, we were seeing lots of mostly young men, but young women as well, and not always just young people, can some, in some cases convert to Islam, go to Somalia to join al-Shabaab, go to uh, Afghanistan to join al-Qaeda, go to uh, Iraq and Syria to join ISIS. Then if, in the last couple of years, we've been dealing more or supposedly more with what we call, roundly speaking, the far right, white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, fascists, conspiracy theorists, etc., have you noticed a change in, <clears throat> I'm not sure the word clientele is the best word here, the types of people that are receiving attention, counseling, help from your organization? Has it shifted over the years? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, let me give you also some background here. When I joined Pants for Peace in 2016, um, I spent over a year wondering what the heck is happening to our kids? What is what is happening to American kids, to European kids? Why are they joining extremist uh, organization? And so what I have found is that uh, this family didn't have any resource. And, you know, and so um, rarely people call the cops on their kids. Uh, and the, the one that I tried, they didn't really necessarily get some help. Uh, you know, as a person that have worked into the intelligence, you know that this is it's not their job to be social workers and to right, uh, help right. kids exit, right? Uh, we're not, not trained. It's not our training. It's not our specialization. Well, yes. And that's not your job. You know, everybody's, you know, and, but at the same time, I realized that those families, they were desperate and they had no idea what to do. So I spent like over a year interviewing all those families. And what I realized is that there was no resources and it became clear to me that we had to uh, bridge that gap. And so in 2017, uh, Pants for Peace launched its very first national helpline, non-governmental, uh, to serve families who had no idea what to do. And for a good chunk of time, we mainly had calls from uh, issues of Islamists. And of course, because that was Carlos' uh, you know, situation at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but little by little, we start kind of getting all kind of diverse calls, especially during COVID, where everything became completely crazy. 
we had the, the, the diversity of ideology was astonishing. Uh, mainly, I have to say, is that the, you know, it, it's often directed uh, at Jewish people. So mm-hmm. um, actually, you know, you probably know that, Phil, but uh, anti-Semitism is the one common dominator between yes. white supremacists and Muslim supremacists, you know. Exactly, who, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, they, they are the two leading uh, American extremist movements. But sadly, we get calls about different extremist ideologies, such as white supremacists and Ottomwaffen and neo-Nazi groups, but also Antifa and eco-terrorism and many, many oh, more. Interesting. Uh, absolutely. And, and actually, what is astonishing, it's too bad that we don't hear much about them in the news, but they, they often operate like gang members who are threatening to commit an, an act of violence. And and what is uh, an eye-opener for us is that um, change the ideology and you will find the same kid. And that mm-hmm. was actually is a mystery to us. Take an, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi kid, an Islamist kid, a kid in Antifa or eco-terrorism, and then you find the same profile, the same vulnerability, mm-hmm. just different club. And, and by the way, mm-hmm. sometimes we get calls from people that are into Islamist, ISIS, and swing into a different ideology such as neo-Nazi. Sometimes we find people that join eco-terrorism and end up joining ISIS. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like people get into extremism and we call that parents for peace like a drug of choice. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why we start really kind of using a public health, you know, uh, approach to empower families to prevent extremism before it becomes violent, if that makes sense. It's actually quite fascinating. And I have heard that before whereby, and I've seen it even in my career, we had, a, I remember a case I worked on where um, a person went from, seemed to be cause A to cause B to cause C, all of which were extremist in nature. This is an unfair question, Miriam, but are there, is there kind of, um, you talked about the commonalities that people would migrate to any number of causes. So you, you take away the, the ideology and it's the same underlying uh, individual. Can you summarize briefly for my listeners the types of behaviors and actions and maybe language that you look for or that parents are encouraged to look for when they when they get parents for peace involved? And, and there, there's no template, and I know that each case is very, very unique. But yes. are there some commonalities that you see across the board in terms of are the I used to call it the signs of radicalization? Have you come across that? So I'm very careful to not give like a script because right. you know, the grooming of an individual is very much tailored. Yes. And, and that's the reason why the de-radicalization process has to be tailored. Um, so what they have in common is grievance, a grievance. Yes, yes. And of course, you know, not everybody that has a grievance is going to become an extremist. But what we are finding... Actually, I'll tell you, when we do interventions, you know, we have what we call an intake protocol. It's a very thorough document where we collect information about the history of the individual. Uh, and and we uh, created that document based on the, you know, the uh, insight that we got from family members and also former supremacists. 
exist. And what we are realizing is, and what we are looking for is what happened before the person is radicalized. In matter of fact, I don't get interested into the ideology at all or the extremism or what is upsetting to family members, because usually when they call us, they are in shock, they are upset, they are angry, and they focus on what comes out of their kid's mouth, which often is hatred against Jews or mm-hmm. other group uh, of people. Uh, it's they, they see this, you know, they are astonished and they say, I don't know who this person is. Mm-hmm. He's my son, uh, she's my daughter, but I don't know who they are. We don't raise them that way. We are not racist. So of course the focus is in what m- gets the attention my focus, our team's focus is what is it that we don't see? What is it in, you know, that is not visible that led that person into uh, extremism? You know, so when I ask questions, actually, sometimes families get impatient because they want to fix the problem mm-hmm. that appears. And I have to educate them on saying, on saying what I need to know is tell me about your son, tell me about your daughter when they were at their best. How mm-hmm. old were they? What they looked like? What was healthy look like to your family and to him or to her? And as they describe that, I try to kind of figure out then what went wrong. You know, in one of the the, the case, you know, a Native American family who son ended up joining Al-Shabaab, I, I realized it was after a trauma situation that happened where this kid ended up using opioid and struggling with addiction. And it's only when he converted to Islam that he stopped like overnight from using. So that was a light bulb. I'm saying, you know, I've done some, you know, treatment, you know, as a a psychotherapist for people that were addicted to opioid. And I was thinking it's impossible to stop overnight. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. using heroin. And and it's almost like the ideology was acting like another drug. So what I'm looking for is where was the trauma? How's the person was coping with the trauma? What was their drug of choice to numb that pain? And I realized that the ideology was acting like a numbing process mm-hmm. to cope. I, you know, Phil, it's very hard to kind of imagine that extremism is a coping mechanism. But it is one, and healthy, destructive. Yes, yeah. But 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 it is one. Uh, no, I agree, and I, I'm I'm so glad you talked about grievance, uh, Miriam. That you know, when I wrote my first book, The Threat from Within, back in 2015, based on my experience with the security service, that was one of the conclusions that I drew was that underlying, irregardless of the um, ideology that you're talking about, there always was a grievance or a set of grievances, and and the way I put it is that you know there's something wrong. I know who's responsible for this wrong, and I and I think that I have some kind of a mis- mission, be it divine, be it secular, whatever, to use violence to fix the grievance. That that was sort of my my three phrases of radicalization. And there's something else that you raised, Miriam, that I want to explore a little bit. You talked about the fact that those of us who worked in law enforcement or security intelligence, a don't have the training, b don't have the mandate to deal with uh, you know coaching or, or or mentoring people who are exhibiting signs hence the need for organizations such as yours parents for peace this might be a very sensitive question i can and i can understand if you're a little reluctant to answer it did you have you found in the organization that there are times where you've had to engage with security intelligence or law enforcement meaning you come across a case where you know you start off and you're trying to do your best to help but it turns out that the person is already 
perhaps beyond your ability to intervene and, and you and you your fear is that if we don't get the proper authorities involved sooner rather than later something bad might happen to this person or other people does is that is that a kind of protocol that your organization has and if so how do you manage that relationship with with agencies that at the end of the day will be tasked with possibly investigating somebody leading to arrest and criminal charges Yes, no, absolutely. So we are not 911 and we cannot handle, you know, situation that, you know, are have a threat to become a terrorist, you know, situation. And so um and we don't pretend that we can stop uh people from carrying an attack uh you know uh as law enforcement we are not. Uh but but our primary uh, our top priority is um security we want to be responsible so what that means here uh you know as much as we want to act before you know uh, a situation become uh violent we need to make sure that the situation that we are dealing with and we have actually uh, a, a protocol to try to figure out the level of uh, of threat uh you know our first job is to make sure that innocent people are not being right. harmed, you know, right. that's the number one. What we do, and you're right to point this out, you know, is that we want to make sure that people trust us and call us and that they don't, you know, think that we are a law enforcement right, uh, agen- agency. But what we tell them is that if there is a situation where the person can harm themselves or others, we have to call the law enforcement. It's mm-hmm. part of our contract. It's not different than a doctor or a psychologist that works with a patient and says that the work is confidential unless there is a threat to self or to others. So that's mm-hmm. when, it, when it is. When that happened in the past, what we do is we encourage the caller, the family member, uh, or the person that is calling uh, about a loved one, uh, is we encourage them to be the one who reach out to the law enforcement. It's okay. much better. One right. thing that we say, mm-hmm. Phil, is that you know you there's no family that are excited to be in the first page of the newspaper. Of course. So sooner you get help and sooner, you know, uh, even if the loved one goes in prison, you know, there is a time of rehabilitation. And like Mr. Blood, so when his son is serving several life sentences or others, they are dead. So, so we work with really empowering family to make that call first. Interesting. Well, kudos to you for having those protocols. I can imagine it is a very difficult situation. And I certainly understand why Parents for Peace does not want to give out the impression that you are working hand in glove with law enforcement or security intelligence. And I I know that other organizations in the United States, especially historically, have been tainted with that. And that therefore removes the entire trust factor between yourself and the community. As you said, if people think you're merely acting as a front for the FBI or local law enforcement, they'll be a lot less willing to to trust you and your organization, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not our job to be the law enforcement. You know, our job is to build a partnership and trust with family members that we are equipping to save their loved one from extremism not to cause a problem. The law enforcement should be the really last resort. Exactly. Uh, yes. So, Miriam, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a link to uh, Parents for Peace uh, in the podcast itself, but maybe you can um, provide my listeners with a bit of information on 
how they can get a hold of you, where you're located, where you sort of operate, and maybe a little bit on, you know, what is the optimum time when people who are seeing things should be calling an organization such as yours? Yes, no, absolutely. So for, first of all, uh, when you see your loved one starting to say hateful things, of course, not every hateful things are extremists, but to pay attention to different things like the change in moods, being consistent about, you know, hateful speech, being uh, highly anti-Semitic, uh, blaming other groups, uh, and also uh, signs like depression, uh, isolation. Uh, and so, so those uh, are really a good time to call us. Not every situation is an extremist situation, but it's better to call us so we can review and assess. It's always better, you know, as early as possible. Um, and we are actually uh, located in different places, from Washington, D.C. to Georgia, to Toronto, uh, to, you know, to, uh, Arcan to Arkansas, we, uh, to the Massachusetts. So we are really everywhere. And we work as a team between uh, therapists and also formers together. Um, we work, people call us, but we also get hired in the prison system to help people de-radicalize as well. So the best way is actually to call our helpline. And uh, can I share the, the number with you? Oh, Phil? please, by all means, please. So it's 1-844-4973-2222. Uh, and our callers come from all over the United States and from Canada as well. Uh, we have also calls from overseas, uh, but we end up getting more calls that we can handle, unfortunately. Well, I, I, I can imagine that. But, you know, Miriam, I, first of all, I, uh, thank you for what you and your colleagues do. I think it's an incredibly important resource for society. You know, as, as somebody who worked on counterterrorism, in Canada for 15 years, you know, we got involved in cases where, you know, there is no alternative. Uh, these people had been involved in the ideology for some time, and they were proving that they did constitute a potential threat to themselves and others, which meant there was, there really was no alternative other than to investigate and possibly get the law enforcement involved that would involve criminal charges and trials and, and, and in prison. But we also recognize that when we got involved, it was already a fair bit down the road. This didn't, you know, this wasn't happen over the weekend kind of thing. It's been going on for quite some time. And so organizations such as Parents for Peace play a critical role in getting in as early as possible. And I think that with all the education you do as well to help parents to understand when something is not just uh, an isolated incident, but is part of a pattern that you can step in get some help, and, and hopefully to alleviate the situation before it goes down that ultimate path. So uh, thank you very much for what you do and what your colleagues do. And thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Phil. It was a really a pleasure to, uh, you know, to show up at your podcast. I'm a big fan. Thanks. So that was my conversation with Marion Churchill with Parents for Peace. What do you think about organizations such as this that get involved with people exhibiting signs of radicalization? Uh, do you want to get involved? They always need more help. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content and want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get a free daily digest of all the content, blogs, and podcasts as well as a copy of my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from, Conf from Confederation to the Present, available there and on Amazon Kindle. 
Love to hear your feedback, ideas for other podcasts. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe.